Welcome to the New York State Bar Association's Miranda Warnings, where we debate, discuss, and dive into law-related issues important to all of us. I'm Dave Miranda, past president of the New York State Bar Association and partner at the intellectual property law firm of Heslin, Rothenberg, Farley, and Messier. We're here today on Miranda Warnings with Liz Benjamin, managing director of the Albany Office of Marathon Strategies. Welcome, Liz. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. It is very exciting to have you here. Liz is perhaps better known as the former host of Capital Tonight, the highly respected news show about New York politics and policy where she was host for eight years. Uh, so we're hoping that you know your celebrity here will give a little Benjamin bump <laughs> to Miranda Warnings. I hope so. My first question for you, Liz, is rise and shine. Yeah. What is that? Oh, well, I'm involved in a effort to um, create sort of a news and arts and cultural website. It's called mm. CivMix with a number of folks, including Joe Bonilla, who might be familiar to some of your listeners if they are involved in the Albany scene. He is also a public relations strategist. He's been involved uh, heavily in Albany and the surrounding areas. We were disappointed when Metroland, um, unfortunately, was forced to fold, and then subsequently, uh, you know, all over Albany, which was another popular website, uh, was also decided to take itself out of the game, if you will. And so we thought that there was sort of a space to fill there, and. So we did. And I am in the habit of getting up very early in the morning. I did it for eight years, as you noted, when I was at Capitol Tonight. But prior to that, when I was at the Daily Politics, which was the blog uh, at, that I was running at um, New York City paper, the New York Daily News, I also got up very early in the morning. I just get up early. That's what I do. And I like to start my day by doing a news roundup. And so for myself, I think it sets things up for the day and helps me stay informed. And so I just continue to do that. And now I aggregate for CivMix at Rise and Shine, which I post on Twitter. And if you're so, following me, that's where it is. So Rise and Shine is uh, kind of like your caption for what you post. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it's a little bit lighter, I think, than what I used to do in terms of it's not entirely news focused. And it's a little bit more local focused in terms of the capital region, because that's where this website operates. And also, I get to do things like celebrity birthdays, which is just something that interests me and what national holiday it might be. I don't know who decides those, but they're funny sometimes and sometimes poignant. And I just uh, and I do the weather and then subsequently some headlines that I'm following. It doesn't necessarily have to be any rhyme or reason anymore because it isn't a political site per se. Right. And there's a lot of really interesting things happening in the world, in the region, down the street. So I like to keep up on that as much as I can. Well, great. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your your past position. Capital Tonight that you were host of was the show to go to for your daily fix of New York politics and policy. What was your vision for the show initially, and did you accomplish what you had hoped to accomplish with it? Well, the show existed prior to my arrival. Um, Brian Taft, some people might recall him, he had this really mellifluous voice, hmm. uh, really sort of a newscaster, which I was not. He's now in Philadelphia, and he's anchoring there, and he's doing great. They started, he started this with a variety of different producers at the time. And so it already existed when I came into the role. 
And I was never a newscaster. I don't think even in eight years that I spent in front of the camera did I ever become a newscaster. I think that reading the teleprompter was never my strongest suit. Interviewing was always something that I did when I was a print reporter and then subsequently when I was a blogger and also then when I was a television host. So that was where I think my strength really was really where I was the strongest. And we changed the show somewhat when I first came on so it would be more interview heavy to play to my strengths. My desire when I came in, and it didn't really change the format of the show, but just informed sometimes who we booked or the approach we took to breaking news, to try to highlight the intersection between politics and policy and also to have some downstate folks on for upstate viewers so they could understand that the power center of the state, for better or worse, is in New York City. And I think that a lot of people who are upstate really sort of um, aren't thrilled with that. There are every couple of years, uh, there's been a piece of legislation that's been kicking around for quite some time, but every couple of years it becomes a little bit of a surge to secede upstate from downstate. We fight all over where that line actually is delineated. Is it the Hudson Valley? Is it Yonkers? Is it Albany? Some people might argue what is really upstate. But I think it is can all you one tell state. Us? Can we I get cannot. A, we, I can absolutely am not going to be baited into here? that particular <laughs> argument. I never can win. Uh, I do have personal opinion about it, but I'm not going to express it uh, freely because I think I'll get into trouble. But the point is that the state needs to understand, downstate needs to understand that upstate exists and not just for apple picking or skiing or hiking or what have you, and that Albany is not a backwater and that there are people beyond Albany in the North Country, in Western New York, in the Central New York, in the Mohawk Valley, et cetera, who are paying taxes and who are using services and who deserve to have their voices heard. And upstate needs to understand that downstate runs the show often when it comes to policy and politics. And unfortunately, that's just the way it is. So that was the goal, to make sure that people understood the nexus between those two areas. And I think that usually we did a good job. Not every night did we hit it out of the park. Well, you've you've called yourself a self-proclaimed policy wonk. Mm -hmm. uh, your show was a little wonky. It was. Uh, you seem to really relish it. Um, and, you know, I think that came through on your interviews and the show where you were really kind of got down deep into some of it. And that's not something that you see a lot on any news show. And so, you know, let's talk about that a little bit and and really how your show was a little bit different than any other type of news show. Well, I think what's unfortunate is that the appetite for that is not enormous. And I, I certainly can't blame the electorate or the viewership or anyone. There's so much information that comes at us all, all day long, 24-7, like drinking from a fire hose. You can know everything about everything any time of the day or night. But And you also know basically nothing about everything as that's well. Correct. Because you don't get down deep that's into correct. the and issue. And that's, that's dangerous, actually. An ill-informed public can't make smart decisions mm. about electing people to represent them. Any examples of that? I have no examples <laughs> of that per se. I think that I would leave people to their own devices on that one. However, I think that it's important for people to the extent that they're interested in educating themselves to be able to have information that's available to them. And often information is obscured or spun 
or just hidden, I mean, really outright kept from people on purpose. So the people with the information can make the decisions without people who don't have the information knowing about it and getting upset. So information is power. Knowledge is power, as trite and cliche as that might seem. I think the details matter. I've always thought the details matter, as boring as they might be to some people. That's not what glues eyeballs to TV screens, unfortunately. Um, if you like Meet the Press, you know, then and deep dives into particular information, or you like the New York Times, or you like the Washington Post, then you're liking that sort of thing. Uh, but most people don't have an appetite for that. And they're busy, you know, they have jobs, they have kids, they have pursuits that they want to enjoy if they have some free time. And I understand that. And sometimes the news can be depressing. Downright depressing. And yeah. people want to have something that's a little bit more lighthearted. Yeah. Let me ask you this. Uh, so you, you you ran, you hosted the show for eight years. Um, was there anything that stood out that you were particularly proud of or a, a moment that was a highlight for you uh, or a theme on the show that was uh, of particular importance to you during your eight years? It was always gratifying and also a little strange when people would come up to you in public, and they still do, and I'm not doing this anymore, and they say, oh, you're that girl from the news, right? Now, I don't know. We were on uh, all day long. In Is that how you like to be referred to That us? girl from the news? No. But in we we're on all day long in Stewart's, for example. You know, when you went okay. to get your oil change, we were on. And so not we personally, the channel, right? right. And so people saw a lot of uh, advertisements that I was featured in also. So And, and I don't look like your average newscaster. So I think it was pretty recognizable. Uh, and people often came up to me and gratifying for them to talk to me and feel like they could approach me in that way. They didn't always say nice things. They didn't always agree with me. That's fine. Um, it was also gratifying when people would ask me what political affiliation I was, because that meant that people didn't know. And my job was not to impose upon anyone my personal opinion. What, where I stand on any particular controversial issue was not the point. Um, I often would be opinionated in so much as saying this was not a smart piece of policy or this proposal, the way that they went about this was uh, seemed to be wrongheaded or was not perhaps the coalition building approach that I thought had would have been intelligent, but I never would say this policy is good or bad because I ideologically do or don't agree with it. So those sort of overarching themes were important to me in terms of one particular interview that we did or one particular series of interviews that we did. Look, early on when I came on, we did a whole series on infrastructure. We did it bef way before the uh, Mario M. Cuomo Bridge was actually... Before it was hot. Yeah. Well, I mean, <laughs> it was hot. It was hot for people who... Who were paying attention, right? right? I mean, certainly the information about how dangerous uh, New York's roads and bridges are in terms of the failure to continue to maintain them up to the par that I think most people would be safe, feeling safe about driving across and on. If they knew more, they paid more attention to just how little we are able to maintain, they would be quite worried. And I and I think that you see that if you live in Syracuse, you know, I mean, there's a uh, you know, hole in the street all the time. And certainly there's been holes that swallow up cars. I mean, we've seen that in Albany and also downtown Troy. Uh, we have an aging infrastructure in this state and you can't grow without investing in that. And it's expensive to invest in that. And it's not sexy for your elected official to be like, we're going to do a multi-million dollar bond act for a sewer system. You know, who wants that? When you're saying, oh, we're going to do a multi-million dollar bond act for or billion dollar bond act for education. Well, people can get on board with that, right? But the reality is if you can't flush your toilet, 
you can't grow a business. You can't you can't live in your house in a safe and sanitary way. And government's first responsibility is to provide those sorts of services for the electric. Obviously, yeah. just gets pushed off because you can wait. You can patch. Well, you can't see it. You can right? wait until it. You're, there's not going to be any great result until it's really becomes too late. We see that with the subway system correct. in New York. Yep, correct. That it's so costly, and it's been so neglected that we're just in this. Depot. Right. And then now we have this insane price tag to fix it and it needs to get fixed. I don't think there's anyone you don't you certainly I've spent more time now in New York City. You meet no one who tells you that they don't think that the subway needs improvement. Not a single person in New York City who gets on the subway, even in passing from time to time, would ever tell you that it couldn't use an investment. The question is exactly what the appetite is. I mean, if we boost the fare to you know, four dollars or five dollars or ten dollars or when you, you know some some of the bridges in New York are quite expensive. The Veranzano, right. for example, uh, then you start to really get into people's pocketbooks, and then they're not really interested. So it's been a few months now uh, since you departed. Is there anything about either the the work you did or the lifestyle you had with that that you miss? It was time for me to leave. I had been in the media for over two decades, and I am 47 years old, and I just didn't want to do it anymore. It didn't, it didn't excite me the way it used to. It didn't feel rote, per se. I mean, some people say, oh, Albany, it's like Groundhog Day. Every year, it's the same issues, just packaged in a different way. I disagree with that assessment every year. There's some sort of surprise that comes along and you go, oh, well, I wasn't expecting that. But, you know, the budget, the legislature, the elections, et cetera, we fight about this, we fight about that. Yeah, that stuff is uh, just continues. I mean, certainly we've had historic changes up on the hill, not too far from where we're sitting right now. And I think we'll probably discuss that later. But I, I don't – it was just time. It was time. Not, and I think that I had been slowly moving. First, I was in print, and then I was, I was a daily reporter, and then subsequently I became a columnist and a blogger, which was one step away from daily reporting. And then I became a, a TV host, which was one step further from daily reporting. And now I just don't report daily anymore, and it's okay. You said it was always there was always something that was surprising. What was the most surprising thing that, that happened uh, during your term? Elliot Spitzer. Okay. Yeah, that was – didn't see that one coming. <laughs> yeah, no. Did you ever get a chance – did you talk to him? Oh, yeah. yeah. No, after the fact, no. Before? Oh, yeah. I mean, I was on the campaign trail with him, and I knew him when he was attorney general, and I mean, we all did. We, we talked to him quite a bit, actually. He was pretty, pretty accessible. And I mean, look, I, I don't think people remember this. Some people talked about Elliot Spitzer as he was going to be the first Jewish president. I mean, that was not outside the realm of possibility in some people's minds. And he really fell from grace in a significant, significant way. And that was one of the most surreal times I can recall in my journalistic career. To sit in a press conference in the Capitol and have uh, – well, subsequently then and, – and have his, his successor, which was David Patterson – uh, give an amazing speech in the assembly chamber. Let me allow me to reintroduce myself. I'm David Patterson. I'm governor of New York. It was a significant moment. And uh, less than 48 or eight hours later to stand with his wife and, and confess to infidelity himself. Uh, it was really, it was wild. It was wild. Wild time that I could not have produced, pr predicted and I certainly don't want to live through again. <laughs> right. And we've had a little bit more 
Well, well there's been craziness, uh, but of a different sort. So you mentioned your time as a as a newspaper reporter. You worked for the Albany Times Union. Mm -hmm. uh, the Times Union editor Rex Smith described you as relentless as the sea. Uh, during the time that you uh, you worked there, now what was it like for you as a, as a young reporter covering uh, Albany politics a, a little over twenty years ago? I mean, it is still a male-dominated industry. Uh, politics is a male-dominated game, but at the time that I came in, it was really dominated by men, by white men of a certain age. Uh, there's just no two ways about it, and. It was, I never, I had some uncomfortable moments with people, but nothing of the sort that some of the other women who I know, my colleagues now of a certain age have said and shared since we had the Me Too movement and sure. people are talking about it a little bit more. But it was definitely people, it's also, it's not just that it was male dominated, it was men with power, right? It was a whole different sort of elevation of right. the situation. And there's gender related issues that go beyond sexual harassment. Sure, sure. Right. I mean, it isn't all, it's about making people feel small. It's about making people understand their place per se. Um, it's about belittling them into feeling that they don't belong in a place. There was all sorts of challenges. Did you, did you feel as though you were treated that way differently than, let's say, another young male reporter might have been? Well, often, I mean, then, uh, unlike now, it's a really different time. But then we, we really socialized quite a bit. And it was sort of seen as de rigueur, something you had to do, really. You had to go out at night. You had to go out and buy drinks for these people and, you know, socialize with them because then they would tell you things. And you had to build sourcing relationships with them. We had expense accounts. I mean, we took them out. And um, if I were seen at a dinner with someone, there would be suggestions. If I were male, I don't think that those suggestions would be made. And that's unfortunate. So, I, you know, I, I didn't, I guess it didn't, there were rumors, it didn't bother me. I did my job and I enjoyed doing my job. And, I, you know, I, I was not threatened. I, I mean, look, when I was at Capitol Night, I got death threats. Hmm. So, and that was, was it that was because, of, because of the, the stories you did on the New York State Constitution? <laughs> no, <laughs> it was gun control <laughs> that actually made this person in particular upset. But that the one that I'm thinking of at any rate. And I just I wasn't cowed by any of it. I, I think I, I might have also had a little bit of a different situation because my father was involved in politics, in local politics in Ulster County. And also he's an accepted expert in New York State government. So I knew some of these players before I got here. We weren't, I wasn't friendly with them, certainly. I mean, it was only in my 20s when I started. So it was a, di a completely different situation. And there weren't that many women. I mean, now we have more women, people of color. We have people who are young. We have people who are not young. It's, there's more diversity, certainly, in the LCA and also in the legislature, which is great. Uh, the LCA being the Legislative Correspondents Association, which is the group of reporters who cover the Capitol. There's also fewer of them, which is really distressing. I mean, there's right. been a systematic disinvestment in resources to cover state government and to cover local government. And that's where the rubber hits the road for taxpayers. I mean, we're all paying attention to impeachment right now, and that's fantastic. And I'm thrilled that the Times is just doing this bang-up job of covering in CNN and MSNBC and The Washington Post and everyone, and it's great. 
but but what's happening at the local level that 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 we right. don't know about because these resources are just not there anymore. well let's talk about that a little bit because you know we're seeing certainly over the last you know decade less resources going towards uh reporters okay. and reporting um we're getting uh, oftentimes this regurgitation of news from other sources mm -hmm, in, mm -hmm. in our in our papers um what are you seeing as what's changed in in news reporting and uh pu publishing i think the everybody it was always highly competitive you wanted the story you wanted the scoop and you wanted to get it first i think there used to be a little bit more of an emphasis on getting it right the first time hmm. Now, because the internet is so forgiving when it comes to the capability of getting online and fixing something and changing something and adding something, it's all about getting it now. I mean, the Associated Press, which is no longer as important or influential as it used to be, was in, in part influential because it would do the first lead right through. Uh, that might be something that's familiar to some of your listeners. but. And then subsequently would do the second lead right through and the third and the tenth. I mean, they would update as, as they got information, but the wire was your early version of the internet. Now we have Twitter and it's not, it's whoever got it within the first two seconds of the other person can claim the scoop, you know. And it doesn't matter if you got it sort of half right because you can go back in and, and fix it. And you can go back in and update with the other side's comment and you can sort of massage it and change Scoops it. don't really seem to matter as much though, right? No. Because I mean, so well, you tweeted something out, you know, a minute before somebody else. It's not like there was a full, a big story like. Well, a scoop would matter if it was really earth shattering, yeah. but an incremental scoop that in back in the day might've been seen as something important now is just like, ah. Eh. And also a scoop at 10 by three is so old, like who can even remember it? It's been covered up by 200,000 other things that has have also subsequently displaced it. So a scoop is still a significant thing if you can get it, uh, but it has to be big, right. like a big thing. When you were at the Times Union, you started a, a blog, I think around 2005, called Capital Confidential, which the Times Union actually is still yep. running. And But that was kind of uh, innovative yeah. at, at the time, and it was in, in some ways uh, helped you make your mark uh, as a, uh, a person of some influence in the news. Tell us a little bit about Capital Confidential and the work you did with that. So it was influenced by, or I should say spurred by my colleague Ben Smith, who is now the editor of BuzzFeed, but mm. has really been an mm. innovator in this space. And he actually had the first political blog in New York called The Politicker, which was part of the New York Observer, that pink paper down in the city that people might now associate with Jared Kushner's name. But anyway... Ben, right, because that's the, that's the paper that he Well, right, purchased. correct. Right. But Ben started it, and I saw it. And people, insiders, I mean, certainly this was a real inside game at the time. And blogs still are to some degree. But Ben, I was blown away by it. First of all, it was happening in real time. He was breaking all sorts of news that I would hear about. And then I'd be like, Ben got it, and now it's not a scoop. And what am I going to do? It's so annoying. So I wanted one so I could be competitive. And it took some convincing. I don't think Rex... Smith would actually debate this. At the time, people were very freaked out because they said, wait, you're going to have complete control over this thing and the, and nobody's going to edit it? You're just going to put it up there? 
yep, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it in real time. I'm going to sit in the Senate and I'm going to blog debates as they happen. What? That's crazy. Nobody wants to. Yep, they did actually. They didn't want to read it. It was really something else. And you could drive the agenda that way. I mean, um, I once ran into a senator in the hallway who said something to me that I subsequently blogged and it almost derailed an enormous deal, right? Just because he happened to offhand mention something that he was upset about. And but that could happen with news reporting. It could happen as well, with news reporting as well, but it was more so real. Yeah, right. it was immediate. And I think that it was at the time really outside. I mean, we were very much debating things like, well, what should we do with the comments? Like, what are we gonna do? People are gonna be able to just say what they want. They're gonna be able to say it anonymously and they're gonna be able to fight with each other. And how are we gonna do that? And no one knew what a sock puppet was or a troll or Nobody even thought that maybe Russia at some point would infiltrate our news system. I mean, nobody could even imagine any of that. And that was sort of dipping your toe into what became just a huge ocean. Right. Now, uh, obviously, Capital Confidential continues on yep. now with the Times Union. Um, and there's, you know, blogs are all over that there was almost as many blogs as there are podcasts, probably, yeah, right? Exactly. So, so, you know, obviously social media has changed how news is going. What do you see for the future? Do you see anything that's going to be, um, you know, kind of as groundbreaking as, as being able to blog something immediately? Not really. I, I mean, look, if I could see the future, we would be rich, you and I. But Really? You'd uh, share it with me? Well, I mean, so, in this I'll moment, I would have to, wouldn't I? <laughs> I think that it's hard to predict exactly what's coming down the pike. I mean, we're talking now about cars that drive themselves and, yes. um, you know, chips that you might implant in your body to inform doctors about disease that might be lurking in places that they can't look and just tests that you might be able to take that would be so definitive that we can't even imagine and cures that we might be working on and all sorts of things. I mean, just today, as you and I sit here, two women made history by the first all-female spacewalk. I mean, who would have imagined that 10 years ago? So it's hard to say. Uh, right, and you, I think you mentioned on your blog today, right, that they, they had trouble finding uh, suits, suits that, that fit. Yeah, it was supposed to take place in March, actually, and okay. NASA was like, oh, sh sorry, we just don't have a, we only have one suit that fits. And I think it was Hillary Clinton who tweeted, make another one. And so they anyway. did. And they did was not the because they did that it for they didn't Hillary want Clinton. To have the same color, they wanted different colors. No, or, no, I think the problem was size. It was really size. I mean, you know, female astronauts are smaller apparently. But I, I am blown away by that and by the things that we have not yet conceived. And so I cannot yet conceive what it is that might be groundbreaking. Or maybe we've reached the edge of the envelope. I don't think so. I, there right, must be yeah. something else, but I don't know what it is. Let me ask you about a little bit more current. What do you see as the uh, big issues in? New York state politics in the year ahead. Right. So it's going to be an interesting year because the session is front loaded uh, because the legislature in it, its infinite wisdom has changed the electoral calendar. And now primaries are not going to be in September for legislators, but instead in June when the congressional primaries are held. Well, that pushes the requirement for gathering signatures in petitions so you can qualify to get on the ballot up 
which mm. is problematic if you live in someplace like Buffalo because it's rather cold and nobody really wants to come to the door in the snow and sign a petition. But besides that, uh, you know, look, you've got to be out campaigning and you can't be out campaigning when you're negotiating the budget or you can't be out campaigning when you're negotiating the big ugly, mm. which is the package of things that all roll together at the end of the session. So it's going to be front loaded and it's going to be fast and rather furious and they're going to try to make impacts because it's an election year and they always do and they want to bring home the bacon. And also adding sort of more intrigue is that every day it seems you're reading about some fairly well-known Democratic state lawmaker who's getting primaried by someone on the left who proclaims themselves to be the best friend of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who of course is the woman who is was the youngest person elected to Congress who ousted Joe Crowley in Queens, who was this veteran Democratic chairman of Queens, and nobody imagined that she could ever do it. And she did. And now she's the poster child for she's better known than maybe even Nancy Pelosi or Chuck Schumer, certainly than Chuck Schumer. So among a certain she has more Set. Twitter followers. She least. definitely has yeah. more Twitter followers. So I, I think that it's going to be a really unusual year in terms of policy items. I mean, the governor certainly said that he was interested in revisiting the legalization of marijuana. And we're going to see uh, prevailing wage is going to be back, I believe. Uh, we're going to see a massive challenge that the state faces is the implementation of the climate change law. The governor has set incredibly ambitious, and he says a national standard for the country in terms of moving us to renewables and off fossil fuels, which is great, but that's an entire economy. He wants the entire economy effectively to be off fossil fuels with the exception of about 15%, which would be offset by um, not to get too wonky. Anyway, so oh, go ahead. <laughs> so uh, there are a lot of issues that are still hanging out. That surrogacy, I think, is another one that the governor didn't get last year that he was very interested in. Single payer, I think we're going to have another debate about that. And again, those people who are single payer health mm -hmm, in New yeah. York. Yeah, uh, those those people who were elected when they came to the Senate and overthrew the Republicans for the first time in decades. And now we have an all Democrat legislature and the executive branch is controlled by a Democrat. We have all Democrat everything pretty much uh, in the state with the exception of some local governments that still have GOP control. They came in promising a very liberal agenda, these state senators. And one of the things they promised was single payer and they couldn't deliver on it last year. I don't know that any state can deliver on it. It seems to be the governor would prefer it to be a federal issue, which makes more sense as opposed to a state by state patchwork. Uh, nobody can really figure out exactly how expensive it's going to be. It's definitely going to be expensive. We just don't know how expensive. And some people kind of like the health care that they have. Not everybody, but some people do. I mean, right. ostensibly, you can you can keep the health care that you have. But if we go on to single payer, I, I mean, look, nobody knows it's not been done. So they're going to have to have some kind of demonstration of movement on that, particularly if you're getting primaried by somebody from the Democratic Socialist Party. That's going to be a problem for you. Uh, I think so. We're going to see uh, those things a lot more sort of liberal agenda items. Also, with housing. I don't think the housing advocates are done, even though the rent laws uh, were a big win for them. They didn't get universal rent control. They didn't get good cause eviction, which they're going to try and get back to. I didn't think I don't think they did got the entire criminal justice agenda that they were seeking. So and we're still waiting to see we're going to see around Thanksgiving what the commission that is tasked with a statewide public financing system, mm -hmm. establishing one or recommending how to establish one, and maybe doing away with fusion voting, that's going to be hanging out there. So maybe there'll be a special session before we even start 
in January. There was a, a proposal by the chief judge of the state of New York on yep. court simplification. Uh, any thoughts on whether that has some legs? Well, it really should. Uh, it certainly has been decades that people have been trying to do this. And the late Chief Judge Judith Kay, uh, this was a real passion of hers. And uh, subsequently, you have seen um, another former Chief Judge, Jonathan Lippman, get involved. I mean, the, the Bar Association, which is where we're sitting at this moment, has been a longtime proponent and advocate yourself. Yes. Uh, ha you personally have been deeply involved. The current president, Hank Greenberg, has been involved for decades and nothing has been done. And the system has only gotten more Byzantine and more difficult to navigate and more expensive and less fair, honestly, for people. If look, if you have means like it is for pretty much everything, you can buy yourself really good representation. You can pay your way out of jail, at least in the short term. We also saw an actress who gamed the system in terms of college education and, and college entrance doing a very minimal amount of time for a pretty significant crime. This is not New York, but it's just an example of how if you are a person who has resources at your disposal, then you can then you can navigate a system. If you don't, you can't. And also, it's expensive for New Yorkers. I, I think that the court system can be less expensive and it could work better. It requires constitutional amendment by the way that the chief judge, uh, Janet DeFiori, has proposed it. That's a heavy lift. So, you know, it needs to be passed by two separately elected legislatures and then subsequently needs to be approved in a public, public referendum. Well, I haven't seen any legislation on the table yet. Right. So I don't know. I don't know if there's an appetite. I don't know. There should be. There should be a lot of things, though. If right. I ran the state, it'd be different. I don't. So we'll see about Indeed. that. Indeed. So now um, you're you're involved with Marathon Strategies, yep. which, amongst other things, provides communication strategies and public relations. Let me shift gears a little bit to the national stage, and let me ask you: We've got a uh, Democratic presidential race with about twenty or so candidates. Without saying that you have a, a you like anybody or don't, don't like anybody, I don't at this um, moment. Is there any is there anybody that's that's doing a good job communicating? Well, I have to give a shout out to someone who probably most listeners don't know. Her name is Liz Smith. Actually, she worked for Elliot Spitzer back in the day. Um, she had relationship with him, but she's been incredible in terms of getting Pete Buttigieg press. By all intents and purposes, the mayor of, of, of Indianapolis should not really be a player. Now, he has a very interesting story. Of course, he's come out and he's married and he's in the Midwest and he's got some issues in his own city, in particular when it comes to uh, police community relations, I believe. That said, I mean, he is he was on stage. He's on the debate stage. He made the cut. So he's got a smart press strategy and she is really responsible for that. I thought maybe she had peaked him too early, but he 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 got himself back into the discussion in terms of his performance, thanks to his performance, and that's on him in this recent debate. Another one who has a smart, who has been able to capitalize on, I think, what people originally thought was just his quirky weirdness is Andrew Yang. And, you know, he's got this idea about like, giving money away, which, you know, who could say no to that, although it, there's some real problems uh, in terms of the election laws. But 
he's originally from Schenectady. That's sort of, you know, a local name check, which is nice. And um, I think he he made some weird headlines about circumcision early on, which people got upset about. But he has been able to take this kind of outside-the-box candidacy and make it mainstream. And that's pretty fascinating. Also, you have to give some credit to Bernie Sanders for being able to survive literally a heart attack and get into a debate a couple of weeks later and still be around. Now, whether or not I think he's going to manage a full campaign after that, he's sort of taking it day by day right now. But this it speaks to the testament of his brand that he was able to weather that to the degree that he did. Well, Liz Benjamin, it's all about the brand. Uh, here at uh, Miranda Warnings, we thank you for, for joining us and giving us your insights. Uh, we have a feature on Miranda Warnings called Music, Book, or Movie. Is there something that you'd like to share with our listeners that yeah. is some meaning to you? But it's not its not any of those. Okay. So I'm asking for dispension. But it's a podcast. It's called Criminal. Okay. The host of it is a woman named Phoebe Judge. And it's a really fascinating podcast in which it's only 20 to 30 minutes long, which I think is sort of a great time frame because people have only limited capabilities in terms of their time and their ability, although they spend more and more time in the car. That's why podcasts are so fantastic and radio is so fantastic. Uh, but it's a, she basically has a very quirky way of taking these interesting criminal cases and bringing them to life. And she has great delivery. It's very deadpan. And I love it. I'm a huge fan and also a fan of the fact that there's like several hundred episodes, at least more than 200. And I listen to them when I run and I run very long distances. So it's helpful to have a lot of podcasts in my queue. So Criminal with Phoebe Judge. And it's not like a serial. It's not it, serial. It no, it's not a serial. It's cases different and cases. Discusses yep. them. It's different cases. And I'm also sometimes like, for example, she did a feature on the body farm, which I think a lot of people know about the body farm. If you don't know very quickly, it is an institution where they do uh, research on decomposition in various states of the human body to inform criminal investigation. And basically, you can donate your body to the body farm and you will subsequently be used in whatever way they see fit. They will put you in a refrigerator and bury you six feet under and then follow your decomposition so they can inform law enforcement when law enforcement finds that sort of situation out in the real world. It is very macabre, obviously, that particular subject, but also really fascinating. I think people have a serious fascination with death and a fear of death, and she does not shy away from that sort of thing. So it's it's a very interesting podcast. Well, very good. Thank you, Liz Benjamin of Marathon Strategies. Thank you very much for Thanks being for with us on me. Miranda Warnings. Thanks for listening to Miranda Warnings. I encourage you to rate, review, and subscribe to Miranda Warnings, a NISBA podcast available on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts.